Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 76 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Philip Pullman, author of the controversial children's book series His Dark Materials about a boy and girl who unraveled the secrets behind a sinister church. The first book, The Golden Compass, was made into a feature film starring Daniel Craig and Nicole Kidman. Pullman's latest books are Fairy Tales from the Brothers Grimm, a new English version, and The Good Man Jesus and the Scoundrel Christ, a reimagining of the gospel story in which Jesus has an identical twin brother. Then stick around after the interview as Corey Olson, host of the popular podcast The Tolkien Professor, joins us to discuss Peter Jackson's new film, The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Philip Pullman. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Okay, so your new book is called Fairy Tales from the Brothers Grimm, a new English version. And these most people know these fairy tale stories from the Disney movies, but the original stories are really a lot darker. I'm just wondering, what are just some of the most horrifying things that happen in this book? Oh, brutal punishments. Um, and the the thing about these fairy tales is that they... Although they go in for eyes being pecked up by birds and people being put in barrels full of nails and rolled downhill and sent out over the stormy sea in a ship that's going to sink, things like that, there's always a principle of justice underneath it. Um, the, it's always the bad people who get punished, and it's always the good people who get rewarded. So it's not gratuitous. It's not horror for the sake of horror. There's this idea that some people have that dark stories are somehow harmful to children. Uh, do you agree with that at all? Well, it depends on the circumstances. If you give a story like, for example, The Juniper Tree, which is one of the best of all the stories, it has a pretty horrific episode early in the story. Uh, if you give that to a child and say, okay, good night, dear, here's the story, and leave them to read it by themselves, well, that's a little bit irresponsible. I think that these stories are really for sharing with, if you're going to show them to a child at all, and they're not necessarily children's stories, but if you're going to give them to a child, I think it helps to be there with the child, to read it to the child. If necessary, if you think the child is particularly nervous, then edit it a bit. But don't be irresponsible about it. Don't just thrust the book into the hands of the child and go off and do something else. I mean, you used to be a teacher. Did you read the, the original Grimm's to the students back then? No, I, um, I, the stories I used with those children were Greek myths, Greek mythology. And I didn't read them, I told them. I thought that was important because if the, if you read them, the, the, the book is a sort of barrier between you and the class. And um, I would make a point of knowing the story well enough to tell it without the book. And actually what happened was that I loved the story so much, I wanted to tell it again and again and again, next year and next year and next year. And the kids, um, well, I know the kids remember the stories now because when I bump into a, a grown-up now with children of their own, and they say, uh, you know, there used to be a, they were a kid I used to teach, they will say that they remember the stories. The children will forget most things you teach them, but they never forget a story. This was at a time, oh, it's over 25 years ago now, before we had, what well, you see, now in Britain we have this thing called the national curriculum. And everybody has, to, every teacher has to obey this curriculum and do on, um, on, on the 13th Tuesday of the term, they got to do the semicolon or something like that. It's ridiculous and it's it's um, obstructive and it's narrowing and it's restrictive and it's very hard to teach anything humane under that system, or so it seems to me. But that didn't exist in my time. I, I, I was teaching at a time before that came in. So I had a pretty free hand. And I think it was better like that. I mean, one thing reading these fairy tales that really struck me is how short they are. And I kind of feel in general like all books and movies are just way too long and bloated these days. I just... couldn't agree more. I couldn't <laughs> agree more. You're absolutely right. Um, but these stories are the length they were in the original Grimm. I didn't see any need to extend them or enlarge them, um, nor to bring them up to date, actually. I wanted to give the story as it was, as it appeared to its original readers, but to put it into a modern kind of English. So why do you think people went from telling these really short stories to telling these 500-page long stories? Uh, well, the word franchise might come into it. <laughs> um, and also the fact that if you've got, you know, Cinderella Part 2, Cinderella Part 3, 
you can make three movies for the for the um, imaginative investment of one, and supposedly get more money for it. So, so to a modern reader, a lot of the stories seem broken. Uh, you know, the second half of the story has nothing to do with the first half. Things like that. Did people at the time not really realize that, or did they just see stories differently than we do? Well, that's a very good question because some of the stories in the book, I did have to kind of join together or improve in that in that very way. There's a story called Thousand Furs, for example, which is a notable example of a story falling into two parts. It begins very dramatically with a king falling in love with his own daughter and wanting to marry her, and she escapes and runs away, at which point we forget about the king and his lust for his incestuous lust for his daughter, and it turns into a sort of version of Cinderella. So that's a, an example of a story that didn't, you know, has two halves that ought to be joined up better. Did people notice this? I, I, that's a good question. I don't know, but they're certainly like that in 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 the original Grimm. So um, perhaps they didn't. So you recently produced another retelling of a well-known hero in your book, uh, The Good Man Jesus and the Scoundrel Christ. Uh, having done both that book and the fairy tale book, uh, what similarities or differences do you see between fairy tales and Bible stories? The difference between the Grimm stories and the stories in the Bible, the, the, the stories in the Gospels, is that the, the Gospel stories were written for a particular religious purpose. They were written in order to tell us what to believe, to say, this is true, you must believe it. Uh, that's not the case with the fairy tales of Grimm. They were just told for fun, basically. So when I was rearranging, shall we say, when I was rearranging the story of Jesus, I did it with that sort of purpose in mind as well. I was arguing with the beliefs that led to the um, development of the Christian church. But I wasn't arguing with anything when I did my retellings of Grimm. I was just trying to make them read more easily than they would otherwise have done. I mean, do you think that there's something special about the kind of story that can become a religious story versus not? I mean, do you think it would be possible, for example, to have people raised to be Brothers Grimm fundamentalists or Golden Compass fundamentalists? <laughs> ah, sincerely, I have not. Because the, the last thing I want to do is start a new religion. So given the controversy surrounding the good man Jesus and the scoundrel Christ, uh, I was actually surprised how generous it is to Jesus. Do you think people imagine that the book will be more hostile than it actually is? Oh, yeah. Yes, they do. I'm constantly referred to as a militant atheist, for example. There's nothing militant about me whatsoever. Uh, people do have these assumptions, and and where atheism and religion are concerned, they have them um, in richly coloured forms. I do call myself an atheist, but I do treat religion, how should I say, respectfully, because I find it an extraordinarily interesting phenomenon. I find it very interesting how human beings can come to believe things like this. It, it, this is one way in which I differ from Richard Dawkins, for example. His uh, argument with religion is that it isn't true, and that's for, therefore it's wrong. That's not my argument with it at all. My argument with religion is that it gets hold of power and uses power for the wrong purpose and becomes corrupted. And I'm very interested in how people believe things that I think are unlikely to be true, such as the resurrection and the uh, assumption of the Virgin Mary and things like that. And again, Someone like Dawkins or Sam Harris or Daniel Dennett would think that those things are not interesting. Well, I think they're very interesting. My favorite book on the subject of religion is William James's The Varieties of Religious Experience, which is a very respectful text, fascinating book, and he approaches religion from a psychological point of view. What does it feel like to believe it? Which I think is the most fruitful and interesting way to do so. Well, I'm actually speaking of some of the new atheist kind of writers you were mentioning. I don't know if you read Christopher Hitchens' review in the New York Times of your book. I don't think I saw that one. What did he say? I mean, he basically uh, characterizes your approach as being, uh, I don't believe in any of the supernatural elements, but Jesus was a wise teacher. Uh, and he says that he doesn't really feel that Jesus was a wise teacher, even leaving aside the supernatural aspects, because Jesus was essentially preaching, give up your family and your possessions because the world's about to end. And, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And if, if the world's not actually about to end, then that's not really wise teaching. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, he's right there, and I agree with him about that. 
that's an aspect that I did try to bring out towards the end of, the, of my book. Jesus was one of those prophets who believed that the world is going to end very soon in their lifetime. And like the, um, the, the various prophets we've seen in, our, in recent years, they tell all their followers to go up onto the mountaintop because the flying saucers are going to come on Tuesday. And they're going to take them up to the planet Venus and they're all going to go to heaven. And, and they go up on the mountaintop on Tuesday comes and they're flying saucers. So they come down looking rather disconsolate on Wednesday and say, well, well we got the date wrong. It's next October. <laughs> That's the sort of um, the, 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 the usual way it happens. Well, Jesus was one of these people. And if it weren't for the crucifixion, he would have been completely forgotten as a, um, or if he remembered at all, he'd be remembered like that. The crucifixion did him a great favor, did his reputation a great favor, because it allowed this new story to come in that he was, uh, he was resurrected and he was actually God and so on. But the, the, the other complicating factor in the story of Jesus is unlike these people who say, you know, come up the mountaintop, the flying saucer is going to come on Tuesday. Unlike the rest of those people, he happened to be a storyteller of genius. The parable of the the Good Samaritan, for example, or the parable of the prodigal son. You hear them once and you never forget them. And you can understand the moral point in the flick of an eye. It's just brilliant storytelling. And that is so unusual a gift that whatever his religious convictions, he would be remembered for that alone. But you do think that he was a wise moral teacher? Some of his moral teaching was utterly remarkable and um, for its time practically reaches the stage of genius. You know, forgive your enemies. Who, who else was say, who had ever said that? Who else had ever said that? Look to the, look to the, the flowers. They're more beautiful than the... Who, who, who else had ever said that? But of course, you did, you did, we do have to remember that he, did, he, he was all given un, in the light of this of his belief that the world is going to end very soon. You cannot give all your possessions away and wander around like a, like a hobo. You, we, we, the world wouldn't, wouldn't last like that. We can't do that because we know the world is not going to end on Tuesday. I mean, I always wonder if when people say that Jesus was sort of a revolutionary moral teacher, I just wonder, it just seems to me that in ancient Greek philosophy, probably anything wise that Jesus said, somebody had said previously in terms of pacifism or things like that? Uh, yeah, I guess so. But few people have said them with such force and clarity and illustrated them with such brilliant stories. These parables are um, unforgettable. So one of our friends asked us to tell you that uh, his Dark Materials was pretty important to her as a kid when atheism was much more stigmatized than it is today. Um, have you gotten a lot of feedback like that from young atheists? Uh, yes, I have, and that's very um, encouraging. It's very cheering to to find young people writing to me and saying that that my story um, helped them realize some things about themselves, some things about the way they viewed the world. That's a, a very um, flattering thing to, to hear. Was that in your mind at all when you wrote the books, that this would be something that would provide encouragement to non-believers? No, no, not at all. Not for one single second. I just wanted to tell the story. That's all I wanted to do, and I wanted to tell it as well as possible, and I thought I'd reached a stage in my life and my um, storytelling when I knew how to do it. Having got hold of this big story, I knew I could tell it, um, but I didn't think it would have that sort of effect. No, not for a single second. I, I, I didn't think very many people would read it, actually. I thought it would maybe sell a thousand copies and then we'd be forgotten. That's what had happened to all my other books <laughs> before. <laughs> so I saw no reason why that should be different. Um, but it seemed to attract a lot of attention. And that was something very unexpected and very, very welcome. Uh, during the, the publication process, um, at any point, did anyone sort of raise a flag saying like, uh, I don't know if we should expose this to children or anything like that ever happened? No, not at all. Because it was published in, um, uh, in, in, in the UK first. And mm -hmm. we don't go in for that sort of thing over here. <laughs> My American publishers were very strong-minded or open-minded or something, they supported it fully. It met with a few objections. There were a few school boards that banned it from the libraries. There were a few teachers who refused to let it into the classroom, that sort of thing, but not very many. And these people who do this never learn. They don't realize that if you ban a book, it's the most powerful incentive for kids to go and read it. 
But in the, in, when it came to the Golden Compass movie, it really did seem that the boycott campaign against that in the United States heard it at the box office. Uh, do you... In the United States, but not in the rest of the world. It was a big, big hit in the rest of the world. Made over $300 million. It made a loss in the States, but that was because the um, studio had pre-sold all the foreign rights. If they kept the foreign distribution rights, it would have been in a, in, in a healthy profit. I do agree, yes, the... Um, the the, the the religious boycott probably did hurt at the U.S. box office, but there's another big world out there outside the United States. But why do you think that that boycott in particular was successful when, when as you're saying, the general pattern is boycotts don't work? Uh, well, movies are different, aren't they? You can't um, you, you you can buy a book yourself and, and conceal it at home and read it by yourself. But whether you see a movie or not depends on whether the, the big movie theaters will distribute it. I've heard people who worked on the film say that the studio was really tampering with it and that a director's cut would be much uh, much longer and much better. Yes, I think that's probably the case. Uh, they did shoot the whole of the story of the first book. Uh, so it's there somewhere if they hadn't thrown it hmm. away. And one day there might be a, a, a cut, whether it's a director's cut or another little cut, I don't know, where the the whole story would be available. But the problem is that... Even if they put the whole of the first book there, they didn't film the second book and the third book. And it is, of course, not three separate books, but one long story. There was no urgent desire on the part of the studio to make the second movie or the third one. And now it would be uh, impossible with the same cast. The little girl, Dakota Blue Richards, who played Lyra, is now 18 or 19 years old. And... Daniel Craig, who played Lord Asriel, is much more expensive. (laughs) (laughs) James Bond. So, a continuation of that first movie in parts one, in parts two and three, is is no longer possible. So, if it is going to be seen on the screen again, it'll have to be in in another form altogether. Uh, So, speaking of movies, uh, uh, after our interview with you, we're going to be talking about uh, Peter Jackson's new Hobbit movie. Uh, Have you seen that, or are you planning to? Uh, no, I haven't seen that, and I, I'm not sure that I will. I'm not very keen on Tolkien. I saw the first of the Lord of the Rings movies, and I, I thought it was impressive, but I wasn't sufficiently interested in the story. I, I read it, of course. I read it when I was a teenager, and I've tried to read it since, but unsuccessfully, because it didn't seem to me similar enough to real life. You know, maybe I'm that's a silly thing to say about a fantasy, but the most successful fantasies, in my view, are those where some aspect of real life is dealt with, is examined or talked about or looked at. And my favorite example here, as far as The Lord of the Rings is concerned, is to look at Wagner's ring, the, the four operas that make up his um, uh, ring cycle. Now there, you do get lots of real human life, principally in the, in the field of sexuality. And love. There, there ain't none of that in The Lord of the Rings. That does, just doesn't happen. And for a, a book of that length to leave out that entire aspect of human life, to me, is, um, seems like cheating. Seems like, um, uh, you know, being chicken. He, he didn't want to look at it, so he, he ran away and didn't face it. Have you read The Hobbit? I mean, what do you think about that one in particular? Particularly since it's a children's book, you wouldn't expect it to have a lot of sexuality in it? No, it's not. Just I want everything steaming with sexuality. It's, I just mm-hmm. I want to I want to feel that the people in it are sufficiently like me to be interesting. The only interesting character in the whole of the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, the only interesting character really is Gollum. The rest of them are just made of cardboard. See, I mean, I've, I've heard you say that you're generally not a fan of fantasy because of the lack of sort of moral ambiguity. But in recent yeah. de- in recent decades, there's been this big trend toward gritty, morally ambiguous fantasy novels. Uh, sort of George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones would be a notable example of that. Have you read any of those kind of novels in the last ten or twenty years? Uh, no, I haven't. Um, people tell me I should read that, so maybe I should. So in 2010, you uh, you publicly left the Liberal Democratic Party. Um, why was that, and uh, how do you identify politically these days? Somebody's been reading Wikipedia. Uh, is that not true? No, I was never a member of the Liberal Democratic Party. And that's interesting because it's not just on Wikipedia. There are actual uh, newspaper articles uh, that that say that. And I guess that just brings up the, the issue of how much well, stuff... Just, they're, all, they're all quoting Wikipedia. 
<laughs> this is a self-reinforcement thing. I don't correct it. I don't, you know, write to Wikipedia and say, you got this wrong. Because, frankly, I can't be bothered. And also, I like a little bit of ambiguity and, and um, untruthfulness trailing in my wake. However, I'm telling you the truth. I was never a member of the Liberal Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Although I was briefly a member of the Labour Party. So I have voted Liberal Democrat, but I was never a member of the Liberal Democrat Party. And now that the Liberal Democrats has, have, have um, blotted their copybook by entering into a coalition with the Conservatives, um, I shall probably not vote for them at the next election. I might vote Labour and I might vote Green. Uh, so you've recently been quoted in the press on causes ranging from the teaching of phonics to the closing of public libraries. How much of an effect do you think those comments have had? It's very hard to measure. I think my intervention in the libraries issue did have some effect because the speech I made was quoted and quoted for the most part accurately in a number of places and referred to in a number of places. And because the Prime Minister then, Gordon Brown, wrote me and sent me a copy of a book he'd written and said, thank you very much for making that speech. It was very impressive or something. So somebody must have listened to it and passed on to him. So I know that intervention did have a bit of an effect. But the other things I've spoken about, human rights um, and so on, uh, probably very little effect. Do you ever get people saying that you're a novelist and you should just stick to writing fiction and not poke your nose into politics? Well, if anybody said, did say that to me, I'd say, look, you're a bank manager. You keep your mouth shut about other things that don't concern you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have the right of every citizen to open my mouth on public affairs. Uh, how about the teaching of phonics? What's the, the story with that? Phonics? Oh, yes. Well, that's um, that's the most extraordinary. I don't quite know how that works. It's, it's a way of teaching reading, which depends on making sounds. Instead of looking at whole words, you look at the sounds that a word is made up of. Now, for some reason, and this is the extraordinary thing, teaching of phonics came to be a right-wing thing, came to be a conservative thing. There's nothing intrinsically about it that would make it conservative or liberal or anything else. But for some reason, the Conservative Party picked that up and said, this is the way to do it. This is the way to teach reading. We shall only teach phonics. shan't use anything else. And from then on, it became a right-wing thing. And if you if you wanted to teach children using whole books and um, the enjoyment of stories and all that sort of thing, you were a left-wing, you were liberal, you were, you know, so on. And of course, the sensible way to teach reading is to use phonics as well as other things. But the um, the problem was when phonics came in, it wasn't used with anything else. You just had to go b a t bat k a t cat. A, a better way of deadening the whole, killing the whole reading experience. I can't imagine. Uh, so I've heard you say that as a writer, that you make use of imaginary beings like angels and demons in the same way that a mathematician might make use of imaginary numbers. Could you talk about that? If you use the square root of minus one, which doesn't really exist, I mean, you can't see the square root of minus one, but you can use it in a lot of different contexts to give meaning and expression to all sorts of ideas that do have very rich consequences, such as chaos theory, for example. So the comparison I was making was between square root of minus one and things like angels and demons that don't exist, because if you use those in a story, Again, you can do certain things that you couldn't do without them. John Milton, when he wrote Paradise Lost, could not have done it without the use of angels and devils. He couldn't have told that story. But it's a brilliantly powerful story, a majestic story, and we're all better for having it. So if some censor were to come to him and say, you can't use these beings in a story, they don't really exist. You must only write stories about human beings that do exist. Well, we'd be without a great work of literature. It's important that we should be able to write about devils and angels and so on. Even though as an atheist, I don't really think that they do exist. But I I, I strongly defend my right to use them in, 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 in stories. All right. So that does it for our questions. Uh, just to wrap things up, are there any, is there anything you're working on now or any upcoming projects that you want to mention? Uh, yes, I have now, um, finally, having cleared Grimm and Jesus out of the way and all the other things I was doing, I'm now able to concentrate on The Book of Dust, which is the sequel to His Dark Materials. 
Uh, but I'm going to clear the whole of next year and most of the year after it. And I'm not going to accept any invitations or to, to do anything, make speeches, go anywhere. From now on, nothing more. Silence will descend. Mm-hmm. I'll be in my, in my room with my pen and my paper and uh, writing the book of dust. Well, we, uh, we really, uh, are looking forward to that and glad that we got a chance to talk to you before the silence descended. And, uh, <laughs> so, uh, Good. So, Philip Pullman, uh, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Philip Pullman for joining us on the show. And as we mentioned, for our panel today, we'll be discussing Peter Jackson's new film, The Hobbit and Unexpected Journey. And we're joined by a special guest geek, Corey Olson, host of the popular podcast, The Tolkien Professor. He holds a PhD in medieval literature and is a professor at Washington College, where he lectures on Chaucer, Arthurian literature, courtly love, the Bible, Greco-Roman mythology, and also teaches a full semester course on the works of Tolkien. To learn more, be sure to check out our interview with him back in episode 12. So, Corey, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. And so I think think the first thing we're going to do is just, uh, Corey, as the Tolkien professor, do you want to respond to anything that Philip Pullman said about Tolkien in our interview? Sure, sure. I'd love to. I was particularly struck by, you know, when he said when he was talking about how he didn't like Tolkien's characters, he said that he found that they were not sufficiently like me to be interesting. Um, And in fact, it's one of the things that I find is very difficult when I'm teaching medieval literature to students, because of course, it's very different. And, you know, a lot of people want to see, you know, they say like, oh, I can't relate to any of these characters, by which they usually mean these characters are insufficiently like me. Now, I'm talking about medieval literature here and not Tolkien, because actually this is one of the ways in which I think Tolkien's work is actually, in my mind, very much more like a medieval work than a modern work, because it's true that his characters don't sound, don't feel like just modern people. They don't, I mean, I've never met anybody on the street who talks and acts like Aragorn. But the same is true of Sir Lancelot. The same is true of, you know, Sir Gawain and Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. The same is true of Beowulf. But I find that we learn a lot from looking at them, and we learn a lot by paying attention to what the people who wrote and the people who enjoyed that literature apparently saw in that and were thinking about when they were writing that. I completely agree with him that you know a fantasy work, for a fantasy work to be good, it needs to connect to people. It needs to connect to real life. And I think that Tolkien is more successful than any other fantasy writer exactly because he has done that more successfully than any other fantasy writer. And, uh, you know, I, you know, the one thing he sort of specifically complained of there is there not being enough sex in the books. And, well, I mean, I guess, like, if that's sort of what you're chiefly interested in, no, you're not going to find it, though I certainly disagree with him that it's completely absent. And this is, you know, something that is certainly very apparent in his book. You know, I'm thinking of his dark materials here. Um, you know, he gives sexuality a very prominent place. I guess you can look at the world that way. But that doesn't mean, again, that doesn't mean it's the only way to look at the world. And I think that it's one thing that you can do in, in reading Tolkien is really kind of get outside your normal perspective. All right, cool. So uh, let's move on to the Hobbit movie. Now, I, uh, I saw the original Lord of the Rings movies with my friend Rob, who joined us for our Batman discussion a couple episodes back. And I was really interested in seeing, you know, I thought it'd be fun to, to see this uh, movie with him, too. And I was seriously considering driving 14 hours to go so I could see this movie with him and then driving another 14 hours back, basically. But it didn't work out with the schedule because of the interview and and because we were talking about the movie now and stuff. But I say that to, as prelude to the fact that when I when I tell you how aghast I was at this movie, <laughs> I don't want people just thinking I'm just a grouch who's just determined to hate everything and has no joy in my life. I mean, I really was looking forward to this movie. Uh, and I've read The Hobbit. I mean, I probably read The Hobbit 25 times or something. I like the cartoon version. I like the graphic novel version. I like the audio dramatization versions. Uh, and so I was expecting to like this one. And I really had a lot of problems with it. <laughs> and I know, I sort of suspect John had a lot of problems with it as well. Uh, what was your kind of overall re- reaction, John? Um, well, actually, before we get any further here, I think it's important for us to actually specify what version did you see? Because I think it's very relevant um, if you saw it in the you know 48 frames per second frame rate or and or 3D or whatever, but I think uh, the frame rate in particular, I think, was very important to the look of the film, and that that's one of the actual issues with it that I think is undeniable. So 
I saw it in 3D with the 48 frames per second, and and I had huge issues with the visual style. But yeah, overall, uh, I mean, I hated it. Like you, I I saw and enjoyed the Lord of the Rings films. I'm not a, I'm not a huge Lord of the Rings fan overall, like in terms of the books and and everything. I I was a big fan of The Hobbit though. Although that said, I I, I haven't read it. I've read it once. I haven't read it since I was a teenager. You know, so I wasn't. My complaints about it aren't to do with it being an adaptation. It's more about just what I was presented as a film I didn't enjoy. Uh, I thought like the scene with Gollum and and um and Bilbo in, in you know with the riddles, I thought that was pretty good. But ultimately like everything before that got it was like so plodding and boring and like the pacing was just so off. And like, you know, I had read a comment on Twitter before I saw the movie, someone said that it took all of the magic out of the Hobbit. And that's like that's exactly how I felt. Speaking of comments online, I mean our friend Saladin Ahmed posted a comment that perfectly sums up how I felt about the movie, where he says, just got back from watching Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings episode one, The Necromenace, which is <laughs> strange because we bought tickets for The Hobbit. And this is something that I've been interested in from, well, not from day one, from like day negative a thousand. I mean, when the first rumors were coming out about the fact that Hobbit films were in the making four years ago, three, four years ago, the initial question that I didn't know the answer to at first was, okay, how are they going to approach this? Because there's, there's a choice that you have to make from the very beginning. Are you going to just do The Hobbit? That is, are you going to just do The Hobbit published work as a kind of a standalone thing? Or are you going to connect it to The Lord of the Rings? Tolkien writes The Hobbit, right? He writes The Hobbit in, in the early 30s. This is just a standalone story. It's much more like a fairy tale. And then his publishers say, you know, this was awesome. Can you write another one? Let's have a series of these little adventures. And Tolkien says, okay. And he sits down to write the sequel, which, of course, grows into The Lord of the Rings, and he doesn't finish it for 17 years. And by the time 17 years have passed, he has a book which is not only completely unlike The Hobbit in tone and style, but he also has now worked out and put together the entire history of Middle-earth from the ancient days and the first, you know, the, now the Silmarillion stories. He has now taken those, taken the Lord of the Rings story, all of these other things, and put them together, combined them, and made one cohesive historical picture. He then, in the process of doing this, retroactively incorporates The Hobbit into that. And some of the things that he says in that, by the way, are completely in contradiction to the published Hobbit. Some people are sort of feeling like, well, you know, Jackson is trying to is trying to force the Hobbit story into the mold of the Lord of the Rings, and he's trying to you know sort of force a connection between that story and the Lord of the Rings. Well, he is doing those things, but in doing those things, he's really he's following in Tolkien's footsteps. That's what Tolkien did. I think it's inevitable. I think it would be disastrous for them just to try to do like the equivalent of the Rankin-Bass animated film, which really is just a film about the book with very little, not no reference to The Lord of the Rings, but very little reference to The Lord of the Rings. And it just tries to do the book story. I think that would be a disaster. And it would be just deeply confusing. People wouldn't understand. So Gandalf, for instance. Gandalf and the Hobbit is very different from Gandalf and The Lord of the Rings. I mean, he develops a lot. Tolkien's ideas about who Gandalf was developed a lot in the 17 years that he was working on The Lord of the Rings. That's a lot to ask of people to say, hey, we're putting out this other movie. It's just like our other movies, except you're supposed to pretend our other movies didn't exist. Like, you remember, like, Ian McKellen's Gandalf? Well, we're going to do another Gandalf, but it's not the same Gandalf, so forget about it. I mean, just visually, that's not going to work when you have the same kind of characters. I really think that would have been a disaster, and that's why, initially, I was anti-Hobbit movie. Well, I mean, my, my problem wasn't even so much that they included the Lord of the Rings connection stuff. I mean, I would have been fine with that. My biggest problem, I think, was that it felt like everything was dialed up to 11 in terms of the scale and the danger. In The Hobbit, Bilbo's never been on an adventure before, and there's this gradual building up in the danger that he faces. And in this movie, it's like the... I lost count of how many times somebody was dangling off a cliff mm. or... Like the the goblin town becomes this gigantic. There's like I had, I'd always imagined it with like a couple dozen goblins in that throne room, and there's like ten thousand in the movie. The level of danger is so high, almost right from the very start. It sort of it just kind of felt, feels like a video game that you know the the, the danger ceases to become real because it's so mm -hmm. consistent and overpowering. 
No, I mean, I see that. I mean, I, I, I do see what you mean. And you're right. Tolkien does that really, really well and really delicately. And in the films, well, it's hard to do that. If you depict the trolls exactly like they are in the books, if things happen exactly like they do in the book with the trolls, that's hard to explain. I, Tolkien found it hard to explain. In The Lord of the Rings, he actually makes a veiled reference to the trolls in The Hobbit, in chapter one, well, beginning of chapter two, actually, of The Fellowship of the Ring, where he says that there are trolls abroad, um, but they're no longer slow-witted, but cunning and armed with dreadful weapons. That is, he's like, yeah, so there are trolls, but don't think about those other trolls. They're not, in, this is not Bill and Bert and Tom, the Cockney trolls. These are like really serious, dangerous, threatening trolls that are out there. Because he knew like those trolls won't do anymore. That was the kind of thing that, in retrospect, he disliked about the Hobbit. Um, was the fact that you know he uh, you know had that you know trolls calling each other booby and all sorts of other perfectly true and applicable names in very loud voices during their conversation, rather than having them be like the kind of bad guys that he introduces throughout the Lord of the Rings. That's the framework that Jackson is working in, um, and you know one certainly can differ from him. Uh, in that choice of framework. But again, I think from within that framework, I think it works really well. A movie has a much different tone than a book, and I think the film is a inherently literalizing medium. And that actually brought out some of the what seemed to be sort of inherent problems with the story more for me than when I'd ever read the book. So I, since, you've, since you're the expert, do the dwarves have a plan for what they're going to do? None. When the... Um, they have a much better plan in the in the film than they do in yeah, the book. Yeah, yeah. One thing that I, I mean, this is one thing that I point out in my book. It's so incredible that most people don't ever even notice it. When the dwarves come against the trolls in chapter two, do you notice the fact they don't have weapons? The dwarves have apparently set off on this quest completely unarmed. I mean, there's no evidence that before they find Orcrist and Glamdring, they even have a single weapon. When they're in the Misty Mountains fighting the goblins, it is only Gandalf and Thorin with Orcrist and Glamdring, which by good luck they found along the way, um, who fight because the rest of the dwarves are unarmed. That's how bad their planning is. When they say they want a burglar, what's their plan? What are they going to do with a burglar? What's the burglar supposed to do when they get there? Break in and steal the treasure? It would seem so. That's what burglars do, which suggests, though they never spell this out, suggests that if we can't kill the dragon, their best option would be to steal the gold, because then they'll still get the gold and they can leave the dragon there. Like, seriously, that was their plan? They're going to hire one hobbit to come and make off with the entire dragon horde on his back? Remember, Bilbo criticizes them for this. You know, he, you know when, when he says to Thorin, he's like, you know, he's like, I think if there's any complaining to be done, I might have a say, right? I, you know, you can never pretend that you made the vast extent of your grandfather's horde plain to me. You'd better have gotten 500 burglars than one. <laughs> yes. No, they're utterly clueless, completely clueless. And, and again, I wouldn't exactly call that a plot weakness. If it were in the Lord of the Rings, it would be a plot weakness, but not in a fairy tale story. That's the kind of, the kind of like, hey, we are setting off to recover our treasure. Well, that's not much of a plan, but you know what? Neither is going off to seek my fortune. And that's what a lot of people do in fairy tales, you know? But yes, when you are taking it out of that more comical, more fairy tale context, then you need more of a plan. And that's why Peter Jackson, as Tolkien did before him, comes to emphasize much more the kingdom stuff. You know, that's why in the film we get Thorin, who is desperate to wreak the vengeance of his family on his enemies and reestablish his lost kingdom and to claim their home because the dwarves have no home and no identity. That's exactly where Tolkien went with the story. That's what he talks about in the Quest of Erebor. That's how the post-1955 Thorin talks. Okay, so yeah, so in the movie they make it so that maybe the dragon's dead and we got to get in there before anyone else claims all our treasure. And there's this prophecy that suggests that we're going to succeed even if we don't know how. Yeah. And, and that, too, the book, I think, really emphasizes fate and destiny and chance and what appears to be chance but turns out to be fate. You know, it's one of the arguments that I make in my book that the moon runes, I mean, man, holy cow, how unlikely was that? You know, Elrond holds the map up to the light 
And he's like, oh, you know, moon letters can only be seen by a moon in the same phase and on the same date as they were written. So as it's not just that I happen to see that there are moon letters written on this, but there happen to be moon letters that were written on a Midsummer's Eve and a crescent moon, you know, which <laughs> I mean, that only happens once every few decades. So it just so happens that this is the one unique night in decades and decades that I could have held this up and this, these letters would have been seen. How about all this stuff with Thorin and the pale orc and using the log as a shield? Thorin is called Thorin Oakenshield in the published Hobbit. But it's never explained. Like, why is he called Oakenshield? Like, he doesn't carry a shield and it's not made out of oak. Like, why is he called Thorin Oak? It's not his family name. Well, Tolkien invented a story to explain how he got that cognomen, um, which is in the, in the battle, exactly the battle that they depicted, the battle between the dwarves and the, uh, and the orcs at the, on the, at the gates of the mines of Moria. Thorin's shield was shattered, and he chops it off a tree uh, in the book and holds the branch in his left hand as a shield, and that's why he's called Thorin Oaken Shield. The idea that Thorin kept it, you know, that he still had it with him uh, in that same piece of oak uh in the was that was definitely an innovation in the film um and in some ways was a little bit strange though again i thought the way that they integrated that thematically i thought worked fairly well and i was fascinated to see that oaken shield drop away there at the end when the eagle picked him up at the very end of the film and how about the pale orc character no that was uh plot wise a pretty big deviation from tolkien's later stories azog the goblin as it was described in the films, the, the dwarves are attacking. Azong gets killed in the battle, but he has a son named Bolg, and Bolg is the captain of the orcs who attack the Lonely Mountain in the Battle of Five Armies in the book. Now, what they do in the film is they foreground it by having Azog survive and himself personally come back for Thorin. All right, so, so two of the parts that I really didn't like in the movie are when. Gandalf confronts the Goblin King, right. and the Goblin King says, oh, what you going to do, Gandalf? And Gandalf hits him with a sword, and the Goblin King says, oh, that'll do it. Yeah. Something like <laughs> that. I mean, I was like, wait, am I having a weird dream or something? Like, I can't believe that would actually be in an actual Hobbit movie. Yeah, that, I, f I, I, I agreed with you. In the book, Gandalf kills the Goblin King, but he kills him almost in the dark. The Goblin King is jumping up and is about to pounce on Thorin and the and company and rip them to pieces. And Gandalf appears in the dark with a flash of light and then Glamdring glows blue like Sting does. And they just see the sword and they can't see anybody carrying it and the sword just runs the Goblin King through, much to his surprise. Um, so there's no dialogue at all there. I too thought that that didn't work. Um, that was one of my least favorite moments in the film also. But again, there I sort of feel... There were a couple points where I felt like Jackson was going out of his way to attempt to have it both ways. That is, he's already made the choices I've described to tell the integrated Hobbit story. That is, the Hobbit story integrated within the Lord of the Rings story and the Lord of the Rings world. But he's trying to, he's also trying to maintain the lighter comic tone of the book and interject some of the comical silliness from the Hobbit book, which was not at all present in the Lord of the Rings books. And that, I think, was one of the less successful versions of that. One of the more successful versions, one of the places where I thought the, film, the films actually did that okay, was the trolls. I thought the troll sequence still maintained the trolls as kind of comic figures, but actually integrated it much more successfully. Well, and with the trolls, I, I didn't understand why they didn't maintain the, the thing about Gandalf getting them to argue with each other until the sun comes up. I mean, it seems like it would have, that would have been perfectly consistent with the tone of the scene as it began. Yeah, I'm not sure whether it was simply that the kind of ventriloquism that Gandalf was doing wouldn't work on screen quite as much. I mean, I could see that being a little bit awkward in some ways. It's also clear that Jackson was making the, by having the stalling tactic primarily done by Bilbo, was clearly, uh, you know, a, a move that Jackson was making in the development of Bilbo's character. I, you know, I can sympathize with that. I don't entirely agree with it. I, I do think that Gandalf's thing would have worked a little bit better. I found the trolls 
kind of inexplicable in that way. I mean, with the movie trolls, I don't know what their plan was. They're standing there like roasting the dwarves on a spit. And it's like four o'clock in the morning and they know this. They're commenting on it. They're like, Dawn is coming on. And I'm like, yeah, so why are you engaging on this really long-term slow cooking project? (laughs) In, In the book, they're getting caught up in their argument that makes them lose track of time because they're so focused on fighting with each other that they don't remember what time of day it is. They don't have any excuse for losing track. Even Bilbo's stalling tactic hardly makes them lose track of time. You know, so they don't have, and I don't see any excuse for them to like, why are they even surprised? The sky is freaking blue on, <laughs> you know, when Gandalf cracks the stone. So if Gandalf hadn't cracked the stone, they were going to be dead anyway in what, five minutes? Three minutes? I mean, it doesn't take the sun that long to rise that far, you know? Okay, and then the, the other part I really had a problem with was at the very end when Bilbo sort of charges out of the fire to hack a orc to death. Just seemed completely inconsistent with his character in the book. It's a change, but it's not a, a, a complete addition. It's an acceleration. Bilbo makes that change. Bilbo becomes an action hero, but in the book, it doesn't happen until the spiders. And he not only attacks like a hundred giant spiders, but deliberately dr- goads them into attacking him so that he can lure them away and then come back and cut the dwarves down. And he you know, draws his sword and takes on the entire spider colony. I mean, he is quite a swashbuckling, you know, little action hero. In okay, that. But he's using the magic ring at that point, though. Well, it, when he's running away from them, yes. But not always. And not, not always when he is attacking. I mean, he does, like, in full view, come in with his sword and attack them. So, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, he does have an advantage. It's not like he actually is, like, just equipped to take on 100 spiders toe-to-toe. He does need the advantage of the magic ring in order to survive. But the point is, he does do it. One of the things that I sort of had issue with with the movie was that it didn't really feel like Bilbo's story. You know, if you didn't really know anything about the book or anything, or had the movie called The Hobbit, like, would you even know that he was the main character? Yeah, I I kind of agree. I mean, Thorin seems much more interesting and compelling of a character than Bilbo does, and, and much more than he is in the book. You know, again, if you go back to the book, Bilbo does almost nothing. He accomplishes almost nothing in the story until we get to the spiders. His list of actual contributions to the plot in the first six chapters are minuscule. I mean, of course, you've got the Gollum stuff, and he, you know, that, that you know, not taking any anything away the significance of his little solo adventure down to the lake under the mountain. But as far as like what he's actually contributing to the quest. He still is almost helpless. He still has to be carried. You know, this is, of course, something that was changed from the books. Bilbo can't run fast enough. So whenever they have to run anywhere, they have to literally carry him piggyback on their backs. And that's how he gets dropped and knocked unconscious uh, when he loses them uh, at the end of chapter four before he goes off to Gollum. So what did you think of the way they portrayed Radagast the Brown? We know almost nothing about Radagast. I mean, if you combined everything... Tolkien ever wrote about Radagast the Brown in his entire life, it would fit on one side of one page. We know very, very little about Radagast. So Peter Jackson had a a blank slate uh, for that. And on that blank slate, he drew Sylvester McCoy. One can like that, one cannot. I thought he was a little bit silly. It didn't bother me too much. What about the rabbit-drawn sleigh? (laughs) Just more of the same. Like, that's silly. But is that from the book? No, it's no. There's no vaguest allusion to a rabbit sleigh. Uh, in okay, the book. I was I was assuming that that had to be from the book because why would you possibly put it in otherwise? Nope, that was uh, the actually. You know, one of my questions is: Did Guillermo del Toro come up with the rabbit sleigh? Because there are some relics in the film and in the script of del Toro's influence, and I wonder if that was del Toro's idea. But anyway. Just curious. Uh, no, the only thing we know about Radagast, and the, the the one thing that they had, you know, in order if they if they wanted to be faithful to what was said about him in the books, the one thing they needed to do was make him close to animals, which they certainly emphatically did. There's a the part where Radagast says like they can't catch these rabbits. These are the rabbits of something or other. Did that something of other mean anything to you? Ross Goble rabbits. Ross Goble is the name of Radagast's uh, home, the 
ramshackle house that he lives in. I liked that line, if only because it seemed almost actually uh, sort of self-parodying, um, because Jackson's films do this. They throw out these names like they mean something. And even to Tolkien people, they don't even necessarily mean <laughs> anything. You know, and like, because just in that moment, Gandalf had said, those are Gundabad wargs. Uh, you know, you will never outrun them. And I was, when I first saw that, I was just in the middle of formulating the thought, Gundabad wargs? What the heck is that about? I mean, Gundabad, <laughs> you know, Mount Gundabad is the name of the mountain in the north of the Misty Mountains, which was like the capital city, basically, of the goblins in the books. And they say the same thing about Azog. He is a Gundabad orc. Like, well, what the heck does that mean? I mean, it's not a species. So, you know, there's that like this kind of almost comical specificity. These are Gundabad wargs, like not just regular wargs. These are Gundabad wargs. So when Radagast responds by saying, ah, but these are Ross Goble rabbits, uh, I thought that was kind of f- funny. Secor, you said that you watched this movie three times already. Did you notice anything the third time that you hadn't seen before? You know, there are a bunch of things that I noticed, like the particular role that Dwalin played. In the ancient battle, the you know not the ancient battle, but in the old battle, the the Oaken Shield battle when uh, Thorin meets Azog for the first time, um, at what in the book is called the Battle of Azanul Bazar, I was paying closer attention to the younger Balin and Dwalin, both of whom were there at that battle, and to see them with Thorin and what they were doing. There were some interesting things that I think are going to be relevant later on that I was noticing the second and third time. Like there's uh, Azog's son Bolg was in the film. He was never mentioned by name, but he's there. He's been shown in merchandising and stuff. So I've seen his image. They, they have a poster of his image that they've released already. Um, so I already knew what Bolg looked like going into the movie. Um, and that was one thing that I noticed on the third time watching it. Bolg is there at that battle and Dwalin takes him out. So uh, I don't know where they're going with that, but I expect that to come back later. We didn't get to see much of Smog in this movie. And mm-hmm. some of this, a lot of the special effects in this movie did not convince me at all, like the, the pale orc, for example. Uh, and so now I'm a little nervous about smog, but what do you guys think about smog? Is he gonna, gonna look good? I, I was actually, uh, really disappointed that, like, you know, uh, I mean, I kind of figured that smog was mostly gonna be in the second movie, but I mean, you know, after being really frustrated with the whole movie, I was like, oh, well, at least we're gonna get to see smog at the end here as, as they sort of, starts showing uh, his cave and everything. And it's like, oh, well, at least we're going to get to see Smog. And then we get to see his eye. <laughs> Come on, man. It's like, this wasn't a trailer. This is a movie. You can literally see the damn dragon. One element I really loved, the place that we saw most of Smog was right when he breaks in the front door. And then we see him kind of tramping through the ranks of the dwarves that have formed up behind the gate uh, to fight him off. In the dwarf song that they sing in Bag End in chapter one of the book, they talk about the attack of the dragon. But they talk about the attack of the dragon very indirectly. They don't ever name him. They don't ever describe him. And more importantly, they don't ever talk when they're telling the story in their song. They don't tell the story like the dragon is the hero. They tell him, you know, it's not a story about the dragon. It's a story about the effects of the coming of the dragon. So that's where you get the lines like the pines were roaring uh, on the heights. The trees like torches blazed with light. So we get the effect of the dragon's coming and the effect of his fire. But we don't get an active verb. It's like all in passive verbs, right? It's not like Smaug burned all of the forests on the mountain. That makes him sound heroic or, you know, it makes him sound like a big deal. And the same thing comes when we, ha- when, when in that song, the stanza that describes the defeat of the dwarves. Its sentence is about the dwarves themselves. They fled their hall to dying fall beneath his feet, beneath the moon. Um, and so that's the line I was thinking of. I couldn't help but think of. Um, when I saw that portion of the film, and all we get of the dragon as he comes in is his feet crushing dwarves. Um, and that I thought was really cool. And I, I mean, I don't know if they were doing that on purpose. I kind of suspect they might have been thinking about that song because that song has just, they were just paraphrasing that song throughout the description leading up to that moment. So, Corey, what do you imagine the next two movies are going to be? The big question is whether Smaug is going to die at the end of the second film. And I think so. This is my biggest concern about the pacing, um, because I think that not enough happened in the first film. They're leaving an enormous amount of plot for film two. If they do the death of Smaug at the end of film two, then they still have 
the dwarves' entire trip, you know, Bilbo and the dwarves meeting Bjorn, going through Mirkwood, getting captured by spiders, and then captured by the elves, the barrel ride down the river, their arrival at Lake Town, their trip up to the Lonely Mountain, Bilbo's conversation with Smaug, and then Smaug's attacking Lake Town and being killed. That by itself is a lot uh, for the second movie. But in addition, you also have to have Gandalf's departure from Bilbo and the dwarves right after they depart from Bjorn, which is what happens in the book. And then presumably the fight between at least Gandalf and Goadriel and perhaps Radagast and maybe Saruman also, and the necromancer, I would have to think would have to happen in film two also, because Gandalf has got to get himself up to the Lonely Mountain in time to be in the Battle of Five Armies at the end. So I don't see how you can push off the Battle of Dol Guldur until film three, unless they do that at the very beginning of film three, and then you know have Gandalf hoof it really fast up to the Lonely Mountain afterwards. Um, that's possible. People do seem to be able to cover tremendously large distances in very short times in Peter Jackson's films. Uh, but anyway, those are the things that are going to be coming next. And that's a lot of stuff to happen in film two. Film three seems is going to be primarily the Battle of Five Armies. The post-Death of the Dragon, standoff at the Lonely Mountain, Thorin falling under the dragon sickness that is under the influence of the gold and everything, the standoff with him and Bard and the Elven King, the arrival of the dwarves, the near battle among them, then the goblins coming and the Battle of Five Armies breaking out, Thorin's deathbed scene, and then Bilbo going back uh, home to the Shire at the end. I uh, I heard something about Legolas returning for this. Do you have any idea where Legolas fits into this story? Well, yeah, he's the son of the Elven King. He's the son of the King of Mirkwood. So he's, I mean, he's like got to be there, actually. See, I mean, this he's not on The Hobbit because he hadn't been invented yet. He only gets invented at the Lord of the Rings. But again, when you do the Lord of the Rings first and then go backwards, well, Legolas has to be there. I mean, in fact, you think about it, the son of the Elven King. The Elven King is personally there at the Battle of Five Armies. The odds that his son is not there with him at the battle are tiny. I mean, you'd have to invent a really good reason for the son of the Elven King not to be with him during that whole sequence. I was actually really interested in the fact that Legolas made no appearance at all in the few cameos that were given to the Elven King. Legolas was not visible up on the cliff. Legolas was not in the party that came to swear allegiance to the King of Erebor. I don't know if it was just to deny Orlando Bloom a credit for film one or what. You know, that is so that they wouldn't have to pay him whatever they would have to pay him for those two seconds of of, of, of screen. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. So um, I guess uh, to wrap things up, do you want to just uh, tell us, you mentioned you wrote this Hobbit book. you want to just tell people about your book and podcast and stuff and uh, let them know what's been going on with those? Yeah, so um, I have just in September, actually, the week of the 75th anniversary of The Hobbit, my book was released. It's called Exploring J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit published by Houghton Mifflin. And it's a, basically the goal of the book, it's, you know, I, it's not a reader's companion. Some people think, you know, will ask me, you know, is, is your book a reader's companion to The Hobbit? Well, you know, sometimes, most of the time, actually, what people mean by that is information on background stuff to The Hobbit and talking about Tolkien's sources for the stories that he's telling and, the, you know, explaining the illusions that Tolkien makes and all of these things. Um, that's not what my book does at all. My book is just a discussion. It's just a reading of it, chapter by chapter, looking at the themes. The whole goal of my book is, you know, slow down and read The Hobbit carefully and look carefully at what it does. And when you do that, you know, when you actually sit down and read it carefully uh, and slowly, instead of just ripping through it, you notice all this really cool stuff that's going on. You know, it was that book was inspired by work that I've been doing on my podcast called The Tolkien Professor, uh, which you can find at TolkienProfessor.com. And actually, I have uh, lately, in the last year and a half, uh, founded the Mythgard Institute, which is uh, a new online teaching center uh, for Tolkien studies and fantasy and science fiction literature. And I've actually been teaching a a course uh, called The Story of the Hobbit. That's been a really fun class. It's a live online class. So if uh, if people are interested, I'm, I'm teaching that class again this coming spring. So people who are interested in uh, complete immersion in Hobbit world, uh, they can look up my story of the Hobbit class at the Mythgard Institute. At the website there is mythgard.org, M-Y-T-H-G-A-R-D.org. Okay, so Corey, I think you've provided a robust defense of this movie, so I might give it a second chance sometime. We'll see. And I am still planning to see the second one regardless, so... Do I do understand different people have different tastes? Not trying to pressure you guys, but uh, 
at the very least, the film is very interesting from a book standpoint. I am tempted to watch the second one whenever it comes out, if only just so I can see small again. And just based on when Corey was saying what's still left to happen in, you know, plot wise. Uh, yeah, that is the stuff that I would like to see. So I'm sort of tempted to see it, but I don't know. Uh, I'll, I'll definitely probably try to see it in 2D at 24 frame rate um, just to, you know, see if that makes a difference to me. But yeah, just like I can't imagine watching the first one again, but uh, who knows? Maybe <laughs> maybe by the time it comes out in DVD, I'll have a change of heart. <laughs> all right cool so i think we're going to wrap things up there so Corey, thanks for joining us no problem thank you and thanks again to philip pullman for being our guest today thanks as well to everyone who's written us five star reviews in itunes including disperser stephanie griffin and i'm not sure how to pronounce this smoberlin sm oberlin maybe sm oberlin however you say it it is a fantastic review big thanks for that and big thanks also to Shane Stewart and Christine Garcia for becoming subscribers number 36 and number 37. Christine gave us a contribution of exactly $42, which made me laugh. To see a list of all our subscribers, visit our website at geeksgunshow.com and click on PayPal. And remember to nominate all your favorite works for the Hugo Award. Geek's Guide is eligible for the Best Related Work category. I'm eligible for Best Editor. And all of the original fiction I published this year in my anthologies, or in Lightspeed or Nightmare, are all eligible in either the novelette or short story category. For more information, visit johnjosephadams.com and click on blog. All right, so that's our show. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.